final wave. Pictures you posted, Sergio. Which pictures? Burke says you posted a bunch of pictures. Oh. You started sure out with your that. lovely. Posted the one. Alright, we're live. Okay, it says we're live. Now, there's nobody here yet because we're starting five minutes early. But, we're uh. Live and we're live on YouTube. Okay, we're live on both Facebook and YouTube, so. Um, we're going to get started early today, and the reason why is because we did some upgrades to the uh, streaming system and uh, on both Facebook and YouTube, and Sergio needed to try it out. So if you get into the Bible study a little late, I apologize about that, but we just have to had to do it. And that means we're going to have to stop five minutes early today as well. And as you can see, nobody's in the church yet. we got three of us, um, four of us actually. But what I'll do is I'll start by reading... Uh, Psalm 119, verse 1. So let me get there really quickly. Psalm 119. Sergio, can I turn you off? Yes. Okay. okay. All right. Bye. Same on Facebook. Bye-bye. Okay. That way I got, I'm getting feedback there, so I needed to... Uh, uh, okay. Psalm 119, verse 1. This is Aleph. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. All right, we've already started because we had um, we had a, a problem with YouTube and Facebook, and so we're we're already started. Today is the what seventh? Yes. Today is the seventh. So this day in Christian history, which is seven February. Let me read that. It was love at first sight. Ruth, and let me scratch my eye here. Ruth Bell could never quite remember the first time she met Billy Graham, but for Billy, it was love at first sight. One day in 1940, as Billy and a friend were driving through the streets of Wheaton, Illinois, talking about their girlfriends, Billy's friend told him he thought Ruth was beautiful. She's the second nicest girl on campus, the nicest being my girl, of course. The second nicest girl was the 20-year-old daughter of Presbyterian missionaries to China. Ruth was studying to be a missionary as well. Billy, already an ordained Baptist minister at 21, was also a student at Wheaton and felt called to be an evangelist. Their first meeting in November was unremarkable for Ruth, but Billy remembered everything about it. The hallway, the friends she was chatting with, her slight smile. I fell in love right that minute, he later told her, reconstructing the moment she could not remember. A month later, Billy mustered his courage and asked her out on their first date, a concert performance of Handel's Messiah. That night, Billy made a more lasting impression. Ruth returned to her rooming house and wrote in her diary, Billy is a real inspiration because, I suppose, he is a man of one purpose, and that one purpose controls his whole heart and life. He is dead in earnest, yet richly endowed with the fruit of the Spirit. Humble, thoughtful, unpretentious, courteous. Then she closed her diary, knelt beside the bed, and prayed, God, if you let me serve you with that man, I'd consider it the greatest privilege of my life. Billy had already written home to his parents about Ruth, 
that she was the girl he intended to marry, but his friends cautioned him to dampen his enthusiasm for Ruth, lest he scare her away. <laughs> so for the next six weeks, Billy avoided her altogether. Ruth, Ruth finally took matters into her own hands and invited him to a house party. Billy issued a counter-invitation to come hear him preach in Chicago that same night, Friday, February 7th, 1941. The second date was unconventional. Ruth sat in a pew while Billy preached. The authority with which he spoke, she later mused in her journal, the humility, the fearlessness. The star seen and admired from afar became a human personal thing within reach. Billy drove Ruth home, walked her to the door, said goodnight, and then hesitated. There's something I'd like you to make matter of definite prayer, he said. Ruth remembered even the cloud of breath that hung in the cold air between them. I've been taking you out because I'm more than interested in you and have been since the day we were first introduced last fall. But I know that you have been called to the mission field and I'm not definite. Truth be told, Billy felt a clear call to evangelism, but he later revealed that at that moment he was so in love with her that the most he could make himself admit was that he actually did not feel definitely called to foreign missions. Ruth was smitten. That night she couldn't sleep and it ended a dreamy journal, journal entry with the thought, something big has happened. In spite of their mutual love, Ruth wrestled with the thought of giving up missions to be the wife of an evangelist, foreseeing many more evenings like their second date, alone in the pew at home or at home while Billy preached. But as they prayed, God showed them that they were called to each other. And two and a half years later, Ruth Bell became Mrs. Billy Graham. Reflection, have you ever felt something big happen in your life? When you do, look to God for his direction and his answer. God is just as interested in your life choices as he is in the lives of Ruth and Billy Graham. And in the 143rd Psalm, it says, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your gracious spirit lead me forward on a firm footing. So, pretty great one today. Right. Rather nice. Yeah. What a question what happened, what, what the motivations were of his parents. They were, uh, I don't know. Like, you know, fighting the Lord. Yeah. Don't want to do that. <laughs> Definitely don't want to do that. Um, let's see. We got a couple of prayer requests today. First, we want a, a prayer of praise because Blake, although he's not feeling well, came today. And I haven't seen him in quite a long time, but it's good to have you here. And uh, we know that he uh, he's uh, suffering with all kinds of afflictions. He had surgery on his back last week. And so... Uh, but he said that he just felt it in his heart to come to church today. So here he is, and it's good to have you here, Blake. And uh, then I got an email a couple hours ago about a girl named Patty that we prayed for. She was in a coma and came out of it. And um, uh, today I got an email that said that she is lost no memory. She's fine. She's doing well. But uh, now she has a UTI infection. So we've been asked to pray about that. And then um, I have a friend out in California. He's in the United States Air Force, and I'll just call him Daniel and won't give any more because I don't know if, you know, anyway, he has a Bible class at his uh, uh, base that he's at that he holds, and he asked for prayer that uh, that would continue to grow and uh, be a blessing to people. So we'll go ahead and learn prayer over those things, and then we'll get started into 1 Corinthians. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come to you in prayer and to praise you for uh, Blake, who's here. And uh, we certainly pray that you would give him strength in his body and uh, help him to get through these difficult days until the day when he gets a new body where he won't have to worry about those pains anymore. 
And we thank you that Patty, we praise you for her coming out of that coma and having no memory loss. She's doing well, but now we pray for her infection and that you would uh, just uh, be with the doctors and give them wisdom to get that cleared out as quickly as possible. And hopefully she'll be home and doing handsprings in the very near future. And we also pray for uh, Sergeant Daniel, who is uh, asked for prayer for his Bible class. And we would ask that you would just build him up and sustain him in that and uh, uh, use him mightily that he could bring a solid word to the troops at his base and that uh, they would be built up and edified in you. And we also pray certainly that you would uh, guide this class, that you would keep us on a straight narrow path of your precious word and to not deviate from that. And that if there's anything that's taught inaccurately in this class, that you would uh, alert us to that and help us not to uh, have something that is not in accord with your word. And Lord, we thank you for the chance to get into it again. It's a wonderful book, 1 Corinthians, and we just uh, commit this time to you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we had to start, just so you guys all showed up on time. You weren't late, but uh, we had to start five minutes early because Sergio and I spent a couple hours in here today, and he did all the work while I pushed buttons, and um, uh, we had to get the streaming corrected, and he needed to make sure that would get get be proper at uh, five o'clock today, which it is. So, uh, oh, he did so much work. I, I just am amazed at the amount of productivity that he can get out of uh, a computer system sitting in Israel working here. It's just astonishing. And then we had people logging on to Facebook Live during the whole time and chatting with us because they were chatting. Yeah, which I usually don't get to see, but it was fun to see people making comments and talking about uh, Doreen over in uh, Ireland was talking about what she was making for Doug and uh, for dinner, and they're having lamb, which, oh, oh, I could just, I could go home right now and tell Hedico we're having lamb tonight, but, oh. Wait, he's having meatloaf. Uh, he's having meatloaf. She's having uh, lamb. That's correct, but still, oh, my goodness. Because he had to have seen it. Okay, so we're in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're in, we're in verse uh, 16 now. So that's where we're at, and uh, let's see here. You're in. Uh, yeah, go for it. You got it. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? Okay, let's see here. What do we have written down from there? In a smooth transition <clears throat> from his thoughts about having laid the foundation and then us as workers continuing to build on the foundation, Paul asks rhetorically, directly, and with an exacting purpose the question in this verse. He starts with, do you not know that you are the temple of God? If thought through logically, the answer necessitates us to think on what he has said about us being builders. If we are the temple of God, then why would we build in a way which our efforts would be of no value and thus burnt up? Remember, we were talking about the rewards and things being burnt up. This thought is reflected actually in Jesus' parable about a building about building a house upon the sand or upon the rock, which he cites in Matthew 7. Let's go there really quickly just so that we know what we're talking about here. That's Matthew 7, verse 24. Keep going, Charlie. Keep going. Oh boy. It's just really taking forever to get turned there today. Matthew 7, and then verse 24. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man. Who built his house on the rock and the rain descended the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock 
But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. There you go. So that's the parable of the building a house on the rock. Why would someone build a house that would crash down around them? That's the question. But this is what we tend to do in our spiritual walk. And this is what Paul asks us to consider. In this, he uses the term temple of God. The Greek word for temple is naos. It is equivalent to the temple in Jerusalem where the glory of God dwelt. Same terminology. And specifically, it is referring to anybody, the naos, the most holy place within the temple where his glory was manifest. This is now the state of the believer in Christ. Does anybody feel that way? You know, I, I, I feel like that's way high of an honor for yes. me from moment to moment to moment. I just feel completely like that cannot be, that I am the naos of God, the most holy place where God is dwelling. That's what Paul wrote. That's what the Bible implies at least 50 other times. I just, again and again, the uh, symbolism is given to us in Paul and in other writings that we are the temple of God. All right. So this is now the state of the believer in Christ. God is dwelling within us. And so our efforts, our conduct, even our whole demeanor should be reflective of this high and exalted position. And to show that this is a true and accurate analogy, he says that the spirit of God dwells in you. Well, there you have it. You could say, well, that's a mistake. We can't be the naos of God, right? We can't be the most holy place. But then where did God dwell in the tent of meeting? He dwelt within the tabernacle and not within the first room, which is the holy place. He dwelt in the most holy place. And only once a year and only with blood did the high priest go in there and, and uh, do his thing. And that was on the Day of Atonement. And yet the Bible says that this is God dwelling in us. Okay. This confirms that God is residing in man in a unique way. And that what once occurred in the temple in Jerusalem is now occurring in each believer. Once again, I find that hard to accept because of the things that go through my mind, the stupid things I do, you know, just on and on I could go. And I wonder if you all feel the same at times because you're not, you're not what's that? Done you're not done you. No, I'm not. Why? Well, we, well, Ephesians says that he's going to present it without a wrinkle or spot. Or That's right. Thing. You know, when he gets done with this, we're going to see him. We're going to see him as he is and, you know, as Christ is, and we're going to see him face to face. That's right. Uh, as a matter of fact, oh, I refer to Ephesians next, but what? Like uh, Christians take consider the few times that uh, mission work. project is basically, you know, I know I'm saved. I know I will not lose my salvation, but I'm a little annoyed that God has left me in this sin sack. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sin sack. That's exactly what it is. We're stuck here in a sin sack. That is exactly right. So, uh. Uh, now, just so you know, I have to say this to the people that are online, is that last week and the, the sound on the audio has been getting less and less and less for some reason. Sergio should have fixed that today because last week you had to really turn up the volume on your computer if you wanted to hear uh, the, the class. And we weren't aware of that until somebody told us. And then I checked and sure enough, a month or two ago, it was good quality sound and then it's just been degrading. But he should have fixed that today. But if there's a problem, let us know. Um, okay, in Ephesians 1.13, we are told that we are sealed, sealed with the Holy Spirit upon belief in Christ. This indwelling, then, is different than God's interactions with others. God is everywhere. 
He's omnipresent. Everybody got that. There's no place that God is not. If he is the creator and everything is created, then it can't exist apart from him. Paul says as much in Acts chapter 17. In him, we live and move and have our being. There's no place that God is not. He is omnipresent. And therefore, our indwelling is a special act of God, which is not available to others. Everybody understand that? Just like God's presence was in the temple in Jerusalem, it doesn't mean that God isn't everywhere, but he had a special dwelling, a special presence that was available in the uh, most holy place of the temple. And as we've seen in a couple of these sermons in the past few weeks, the glory of the Lord actually radiates out of the tabernacle through the tent of meeting, and it's displayed to the people when God is angry or when he is displaying his glory, etc. And so, uh, but... Uh, that would be a picture of Christ in the transfiguration. His human body concealed the glory of God, but at that time on the Mount of Transfiguration, it actually radiated out of him. That's the symbolism we get from that. By understanding that, then we can understand what is going on in the Old Testament. All right, so um, just as his divine glory was seen in the temple in Jerusalem, he is now revealed to us. And because of this, our actions take on a new significance. When the people of Israel defiled the temple, God destroyed the temple and his presence departed. What then would be the consequences of our disobedience? Paul will continue with his thoughts on this in the coming verse. So that's where we stand. Just think about that. God finally got tired of the people of Israel. They, he lived in and among them. They disobeyed and finally he had the temple destroyed. He departed. The temple was destroyed and the people went into exile. And you can read about that. As a matter of fact, before we get into the rest of it, let's really quickly look at what the Lord said occurred. That would be in Ezekiel 8, I think, maybe 9. Let me check really quickly. Um, uh, yeah, let's just read 8 9. So we can think about our own selves in relation to the, uh, the uh, temple and God's glory. It came to pass, chapter 8 of Ezekiel, in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and there was a likeness, like the appearance of fire from the appearance of his waist and downward, fire, and from his waist and upward, like the appearance of brightness, like the color of amber. He stretched out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my hair and lifted, the spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven, and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the north gate of the inner court, where the seat of the image of jealousy was, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of God, of is the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the plain. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted my eyes towards the north, and there, north of the altar gate, was this image of jealousy in the entrance. In other words, there's an abomination, a an idol there, right in the temple complex. Furthermore, he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel commits here to make me go far away from my sanctuary? Now turn again, you will see greater abominations. So he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, Son of man, dig into the wall. And when I dug into the wall, there was a door. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked abominations which they are doing there. Now think of yourself while I'm reading this, because we do wicked things from time to time, right? We're sin sacks, as Chris says, okay? 
Verse 10, so I went in and saw, and there every sort of creeping thing, abominable beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. They've completely defiled this temple of God. And there stood before them 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel. Well, what is the 70 men? It's the Sanhedrin. It's what, you know, Moses had the 70, and after that, they had 70 elders in Israel. Okay, well, that's these people are the leaders of Israel, and they're profaning the temple. It says, um, and in their midst stood Jaazaniah, the son of Shaphan. Each man had a censer in his hand with a thick cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his idols. Listen, we know that was forbidden in the Old Testament. They presented incense at certain times of the day on the golden altar of incense. There's never a time where it says bring a censer of incense into the temple except by the high priest on the day of atonement. That's the only time that's prescribed in the law. And so what they're doing is they're burning incense illegally in God's temple and certainly not to the Lord. Okay. So uh, then he said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his idols, for they say the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Verse 13, and he said to me, turn again, and you will see greater abominations that they are doing. So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house, and to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again, you will see greater abominations than these. So he turned, so he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs towards the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they were worshiping the sun toward the east. The whole point was that when they were worshiping, their back would be to the sun and they'd be worshiping the Lord who is in the west. That's the whole point of this, is to want to return to paradise where God was. And that's the symbolism of the, the uh, veil in front of the most holy place, which is all the way to the west, that veil had woven on it what? Cherubim. Cherubim. That's right. It's a picture of guarding access to God once again. And you're supposed to worship in that direction, wanting to be reconciled to the Lord. And instead, they've turned their back on the Lord, and they're worshiping something that the Lord had created. So you can see he, he goes up each step in the abominations that they're committing. Anyway, and he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it a trivial thing to the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence. Then they have returned to provoke me to anger. Indeed, they put the branch to their nose. Another pagan thing of doing. Like It would be like knocking on wood. Therefore, I also will act in fury. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. And then chapter 9. We'll be done with this in a minute. Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice saying, let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. Okay, so just like Samaria was surrounded by all of these uh, hosts that nobody could see, and then uh, what was it, Elisha, Elijah, the prophet said, Elisha, Elisha. okay, he said, let my servant Gehazi see them. And he opened his eyes and he saw all these hosts out there all around the city, that's right. Okay, so there are guardians around the city and the Lord has these guardians now being called, okay? And with each with a deadly weapon in his hand. The word in Hebrew is mapatz. It means a shattering weapon. It's like you take something and you club somebody over the head and they're done, okay? 
And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe, his mapats, in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub. Okay, think of the Ark of the Covenant and the glory of God is there between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant where it says, I will dwell there. Okay, it's come up where it had been to the threshold of the temple. It's like, I'm getting ready to depart. I'm out of here. Okay, so, and he called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, throughout the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark, a tav, which is a cross, on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. To the others, he said, in my hearing, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eye spare, nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens, and little children and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the mark. And begin at my sanctuary. Judgment begins at the house of God. That's right. Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. Then he said to them, now we're in verse 7 now. Then he said to them, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. And they went out and killed in the city. So it was, while they were killing them, I was left alone, and I fell on my face and cried out and said, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great, and the land is full of bloodshed, and the city full of perversity. For they say the Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. Verse 10, And as for me also, my eye will neither spare, nor will I pity but I will recompense their deeds on their own head. And the chapter ends with, just then the man clothed with linen who had the inkhorn at his side reported back and said, I have done as you commanded me. Now he was given a command, go out and put a mark on the forehead of everybody that mourns over the things that are done. Within two paragraphs, just a conversation, a return conversation, and then a final word, he comes back. That shows you the brevity of the number of people that were in Jerusalem that actually mourned over what was going on. The whole city had gone completely astray. He went out, flew around the city, put a couple marks on the head in no time at all, within just a, a, a one speaking, another speaking, and then a, a response. That was it. It shows you. So anyway, that's that's a lesson about us, though. It goes on in chapter 10, and it says that the, the Lord finally departs completely from the temple. But you got the picture. He gets up from there, goes to the outside of the temple, slays everybody that is not doing this, and then off he goes. We're not going to lose our salvation. That is not a picture of that. But at the same time, we have the same glory of God dwelling in us in a special way because of the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And if we bring shame and discredit upon the Lord, we are the ones that are going to suffer for it. So that's that's the lesson that you should have there. Jeremiah uh, said that every, city, every street, at an idol. Yeah, your idols, are, so are the number of your... Filled. <laughs> filled with it. Filled with idols everywhere. And that's the same in America. You just drive down the road and you'll see, you know, palm reader here and you'll have this, yeah. you know. It's everywhere. It's just everywhere. You could describe that as the right side in that State of the Union message when it says all those things that you just read. In oh, absolutely. 10. Yeah, 100%. I mean, we were talking about that before we got started today, is that they're literally rejoicing over the things they're doing. Literally, the, the wickedness they're doing, and they're smiling about it. They're applauding it. 
It, it's as if there's, well, there isn't. There is no shame left. It's just none. Okay, life application. If you have called on Jesus, you are sealed with God's Holy Spirit. If you are so sealed, then you have an obligation to that special honor. As you conduct your daily affairs, be prepared to act in a manner which acknowledges your exalted state and which will bring eternal rewards, not the fire of judgment and loss. Okay, that's not judgment and loss in condemnation. That's judgment and loss because of a loss of rewards. You are sealed. You are sealed. Okay, 317. Well, before we go on, just recall that shame requires a conscience. Oh, yeah, shame requires a conscience, and theirs is completely seared. <laughs> completely yeah. seared. Oh, and two things. Miss Magnuson must still be sick because she's not here with Mr. Magnuson. And the bridges aren't here, which they're always here. So I'm, I'm assuming one of them is sick as well. So we need to keep them in prayer uh, while we're uh, doing our, our prayers tonight. Okay, 317. If anyone destroys, the, destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. God's temple is sacred. You are that temple. Yep, which temple you are. Okay, verse 317. Paul has been speaking consistently in this chapter concerning right instruction especially about the building up of the church upon the foundation, which is Christ, Jesus Christ. In writing to the Corinthians, he made the analogy of building upon the foundation with various materials. Some would last at the judgment, some would not. After this, he noted in speaking to them collectively that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. And because you, meaning the individual believers, are in the temple of God, he now makes a sobering statement concerning that position. He says, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. He has not introduced a new group of people. He's still speaking to believers within the church, saved people. The context needs to be maintained in order to understand what is being referred to. As he has been speaking of the building of the church, the intent is that those who build in an inappropriate manner, therefore defile the temple. Some versions say destroy, violate, waste, ruin, whatever. In taking such a course of action, retribution from God can be expected. In a literal rendering from the pulpit commentary, God shall ruin the ruiner of his temple. Too often this verse is used by interpreters concerning an action such as suicide or some other personal harm. If we so act, then God will destroy us. This is illogical, and it does not fit with the context, nor with the fact that if someone has committed suicide, they have already destroyed their personal temple. This is not the intent of the verse. Rather, if someone is engaged in habits contrary to the truth of the gospel, such as sexual immorality, divisions, the very thing that Paul has been addressing in these verses, backbitings and so on, etc., they, ex they can expect a penal judgment for their actions. Likewise, if an instructor of doctrine, a pastor, elder, teacher, or so on, is engaged in either consistently false teachings or inappropriate behavior, which will defile the temple of God, then God will also br bring ruin on them. A sad example of this is the long list of preachers and evangelists who have been caught up in adulterous affairs. We can think of 20 of them, probably. If we just sat down and called out names, we'd be able to come out with 20 of them in a very short order. Anyway. When their actions come to light, they are also brought to ruin, losing all credibility, and usually they are banned from further preaching or teaching. 
Now, that's not the case with all evangelists. A lot of them get away with it because they already have millions of dollars and they just restart their ministry and say, I'm sorry, and go on with that. But this verse is not speaking of a loss of salvation. It is This happened to a personal friend of mine, a very good friend of mine who is a pastor, and he got caught up in something and he's no longer a pastor in any way, shape, or form. Don't know what he's doing now, but uh, such is life. And you think of the people that were harmed with that. Anyway, um, let's see here. Instead of speaking of actions which bring discredit and defilement upon what God is doing. In such actions, God can be expected to bring the offenders to ruin for what they have done. This is certain because he finishes the, this verse with, For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. If these people are God's temple, then they are believers, not unbelievers. As always, care and evaluating context must be given in order to avoid making a pretext. We are God's temple. We are set apart as holy. Therefore, let us endeavor to live up to that position and bring glory and honor to God. Now, I've said this before, and you want to kind of keep this in mind. God made a covenant promise to the people of Israel, okay? God will never break his covenant of promise with Israel. That does not mean that all Jews are saved. That means that Israel will always be saved as Israel. He will never let that go. And that is a picture of our own individual salvation. God made a covenant promise with each individual. In He doesn't make a covenant promise to the church, does he? Not at any time. Okay, he makes a covenant promise with the individuals who come into the church. And if a individual church does not stay in line with what the Lord says, then he simply removes the, that's right, the lampstand, candlestick, whatever you want to call it. So yeah, he removes that, okay? So our salvation is pictured by God's faithfulness to Israel. Israel has endured exactly as Leviticus 26 said they would. They would be destroyed. They would be crushed. They would be sent to all parts of the world. They would be so annihilated that nobody would ever think that they would come back. And yet his word said that I will never break this covenant with them. And they have come back. Okay. They are back in the land. They're not right with the Lord still. Most of them are not saved. The vast majority of them. And yet God has been faithful to them as a people. He will always treat you in the same way. What happens to you though, just like what happens to Israel is what we call a self-inflicted wound. If I pull the gun out of wherever it is right now, <laughs> I won't say, but if I pulled that out and I was to shoot myself in the foot, who would suffer? That's right. I'm the one that would suffer because it's a self-inflicted wound. This is what happens in this world. Everything that happens to Israel, and I'll talk about it in this, this sermon this Sunday, I bring it up almost every Sunday, is that everything that has happened to them has been a self-inflicted wound. Okay? They only have to look in the mirror. But they won't do it. I've been, like I said a couple times in this class, I've been to a, a Jewish funeral. One of my friend's fathers died, and I got invited. So I went there down at the Jewish cemetery, kind of close to your place, up in that area of town. And um, uh, while I was there, maybe it's even north of you. Anyway, um, uh, they he brought up Leviticus 26. This was the rabbi. Brought up Leviticus 26, and then he just dismissed it as if it had no meaning at all. Zero. I, I can't even imagine that. This is what established you as a people. This is what got you back into Israel within the past 70 years. It's very clear, and yet he just dismissed it. We have no culpability in this. This person laying in this grave is as saved as he'll ever be. How can that be? How can that be? He's been disobedient to the Lord. He's never called on Jesus. Okay, but 
So think of your own selves. Individually, you will suffer, but you will not lose your salvation. Individually, Jews suffer, but Israel will not lose their salvation. Okay? Kind of think of it in that way. God is faithful to you, despite your unfaithfulness to him. And I'm talking to Charlie Garrett as much as all of you. Oh, just go ahead and read it because you always ask, and it'll be at a time when I'm not ready. Oh. I have too many dogs. No, said no, no one, one ever. Okay, I have too many dogs said no one ever. Yeah. Okay, there you go. I just You always ask when I'm not ready, and I'm like, know, oh. So, okay, here we go. Uh, life application. Proper conduct is a requirement for holy living. I have eight dogs, and it's not enough. <laughs> if someone is engaged yeah, in yeah. improper behavior, and nothing happens to them in regard to their downfall or chastisement, then they're probably not saved at all. As Hebrews 12, 7 and 8 says, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are not without chastening, of which all had become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Yes, that's written to the Hebrew people, but the principle applies to us as well. Okay? And it applies to Israel as a son. Israel is my firstborn son, it says back in Exodus, right? They've been chastened a lot. They are illegitimate in the sense that they're not right with the Lord, but they are his son, and he is chastening them to make them right with him, and it will eventually come about. So keep thinking of the parallels between the two. And 3.18. Do not deceive yourself. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. Become a fool that he may become wise. All right. In chapters 1 and 2. Paul spoke in detail about human wisdom in contrast to spiritual wisdom. There we saw the true spiritual wisdom will always be centered on one thing, Jesus, the person and work of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, we read this. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Now, returning to this thought concerning wisdom, after having discussed our building upon the foundation, which is Christ, he reminds us of the importance of the materials we use by beginning with, let no one deceive himself. Self-deception is an enormous problem. It's probably the biggest problem in the world today, but it's it, maybe not, but it's close. When people are puffed up with pride, and are unwilling to focus on or properly handle the word of God, they will delude themselves concerning it. There's self-deception in the secular world, and there's self-deception in Christianity. A great example of this is when a person is asked to question, asked a question to which they have no answer. Instead of saying, I don't know, they will often start theorizing in their own mind, looking for anything that sounds acceptable so they don't sound uneducated. In this, they begin to deceive themselves and thus deceive others in the process. Paul speaks about this type of thing in the book of 2 Timothy. Well, quickly here, we'll go there. 2 Timothy 3, verse 13. But evil men and impostors will go, grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. There's a point where you just start deceiving yourself. Anytime we depart from the truth of Christ, as is revealed in Scripture, we head immediately in a perverse direction. However, this isn't limited to Christians with bad theology. It permeates the world of academia. 
It is more than common to invent fine-sounding arguments concerning issues to which the specialists have no idea about and no answer to. Instead, they make things up in their head in order to sound wise, and they carry many along in their deceit. Colleges are filled with that, absolutely filled with that type of thinking right now. And the worst ones are the ones that make stuff up that are really harmful. Like we talked about him in the uh, prophecy update uh, a month ago, the professor that said that it would be better if there weren't humans on the planet because all the animals would not be killed and there wouldn't be all this death. And, you know, and as I said, I emailed the guy and I said, if you have a problem with humans being on this planet, start, show the example. Because you are, what? Lead the way. Lead the way. It just to show him it's hypocrisy. Absolutely crazy. He would say something like that, affect a young person's mind, and expect them to do what he wants. He's going to live out his life quietly, and I'll be dead, and then all these other people can kill themselves. It is absolutely terrible that people do that type of thing, that they would teach that type of thing. They're deceivers, and they're being deceived. They're allowing their own imaginations to run wild. Paul gives a remedy for this when he says, if anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Rather than seemingly wise by professing a wisdom other than Christ, the wisest course of all is to become a fool. This means that taking the direction of Christ and running with the knowledge of Christ is foolishness to the world. When someone takes that direction, they are counted as a fool. We were talking about that before y'all arrived today, Blake and I. But in reality, they have made the wisest choice of all because their instruction comes from the true source of wisdom, God. In this, one will become a fool that he may become wise. He's not talking about you going out and beating your head on a wall and having saliva run down your face and saying, well, see, I'm a fool. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about pursuing Jesus Christ, which the whole world thinks is foolish. Everybody thinks that you're insane if you're going, oh, you're one of those. You're a Christian, oh, right? You're one of those. Yeah, absolutely. But if you're pursuing Christ, you are pursuing the wisest thing of all. And that's what he's talking about here. What seems contradictory to the rest of the world is the soundest course of all. In Christ, there is an eternal fount of wisdom, reason, intelligence, and splendor. Apart from him, there is only vain imaginings and self-deceit, which results in the deceiving of others. It is an eternal, eternally sad choice to make. And having talked about that for a minute, I don't know if Sergio is still listening or not, but I'll embarrass him for a moment if I can't. Actually, not embarrass him. I'm giving him a pat on the back. Is that he was uh, talking to somebody, I think he said today, and uh, this person says, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a believer in God. And, you know, this is as he is leaving. He said, you know, do you believe? Oh, yeah, our whole family is very observant. And he says, well, he's not wearing a kippah, which is if you're an observant Jew, you'd be wearing a kippah. And so he questioned, he says, what do you believe? And they talked about it a while. And he said to him, listen, I'd like you to consider the message of Jesus because they're speaking Hebrew. So obviously the guy isn't and he, he says, um, and I'm blowing this a little bit. I'm just paraphrasing what he told me. But he says, I'd like you to consider this. And he gave him a sight of Messianic Jews that go out and they talk about Jesus. And they have a very good way of doing about it. I've told you about him in the past where they walk up and they speak in Hebrew. And they'll take like, for example, Isaiah 53. And they'll say, I want to read you something. I want you to tell me who this is that I'm reading about. And so he'll read Isaiah 53, and this is all being done in Hebrew, and these are just Jews on the street that don't believe in anything, or they believe in, you know, whatever they believe. And as soon as they start reading, they say, oh, you're, that, that's Jesus. Now, they have committed already, because they have no idea. 
That's Jesus. So they've admitted this is Jesus who's being spoken about. And then they finish up with Isaiah 53 and they say, so you say that's Jesus. No doubt about it. We know that story. We've heard that all of our lives. He says, do you know where that was written? No, I have no idea at all. He says, it's in your book. Now he's got them trapped because they have heard their own, their own scriptures tell them something that they said they know is Jesus. And so they have this very good way of doing this without belligerence, without arrogance, just very humbly. And people stop and consider, I had no idea, right? Well, that's what Sergio asked him to do today. And the guy, he said, I know the guy's going to do it because when I got home, he texted me and he said, what was the name of that site that I, I forgot the names you asked for? And Sergio gave it to him. So hats off to people that are willing to simply open their mouth and speak. Okay. That's all it takes. You don't know what effect you're going to have on anybody. So have a wonderful night, Freda. Okay, life application. New religious expressions pop up daily. I mean, literally, daily, somebody comes up with a new religious expression, okay? Old religions are revived and reinstated as supposed sources of enlightenment. Philosophies are held in high esteem because they question reality or the ability to truly know anything at all. All such things seem to be wise in the world, but they are foolishness to God. On the contrary, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the true wisdom of God, and in it all other machinations of man are made utterly foolish. Stand firm on the gospel of Christ and know that God is pleased with you looking foolish to the rest of the world. 319? For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craft. Okay, man, oh man. As has been noted time and again in this epistle, care needs to be taken to ensure context is maintained. Without considering the surrounding thoughts, incorrect ideas about what is being discussed will naturally arise. The verse begins with the word for, and it asks us to consider what has been said in order to make the connection with the rest of the initial thought. Paul has been speaking about building upon the foundation, which is Christ, and that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. For then asks us to consider that in context with the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. This has nothing to do with appropriate studies of science, medicine, astronomy, geology, or any other discipline which God gave us the intelligence to pursue. Everybody got that? That's not what he's talking about. For example, because of botany, we have grafts of hardy fruits, which can withstand drought-like conditions in attacks by insects or pests. You come to Florida and you want the best mangoes in the world, they are grafted mangoes. The ones at my house are the best of the best. They're called Kent. Somebody back in 1948 or 1949 planted my mango tree, and there it stands with mangoes giant, and they're, they're much hardier than a native natural uh, mango. It's been put into a graft. It can survive through all kinds of climates that other mangoes can't, and they're very sweet because somebody took the time to do these things, okay? So we have flowers that bloom in a wild array of colors and durations that are not found in the natural world. Why? Because we have adapted them through our own, you know, you, our own reasoning, our own ability to figure these things out. That's not what God is talking about in this verse. God is not asking believers to take our brains and set them aside in this world because that's what some people get out of this verse because they've torn it out of its proper context. Cults and misguided sects ignorantly don't use medicine 
which has been developed by man, and thus they bring on themselves prolonged sickness and even premature death. Now, I'm not saying that all medicines are good. Don't take this to an unintended extreme. But what was Luke? He was a physician, right? What did Jesus say? Physician, heal thyself. It was obvious that people had physicians. We still do to this day. If you break your arm and the bone is sticking out, do you just say, oh, it'll take care of itself? God will take care of it? No, of course. You're going to go to a doctor and he's going to snap that thing back into place. He's going to put a, well, I know it's a little graphic, but you got to figure. At what point do you say, I am not going to do something that is beneficial? We know that blood transfusions are fine. They are a-okay. We've been doing it for a hundred some years now, the military especially, but we know that they're fine. If you go into the Jehovah's Witnesses, no blood. Well, you want to die early? Go ahead. That is absolutely fine. But that is not what God is talking about in these type of verses. Okay? Once again, not all medicines are good. I'm not trying to say that. I'm saying that we have medicine. We have the ability to do these things. Don't get into a mindset where God wouldn't want that because it's not natural. Listen, if you take honey that is local honey and people will go out and buy local honey, why do people buy local honey? Somebody. For allergies. If you buy honey from California, you're not going to get any benefit from it because the allergies in California are different than in Florida. But if you buy local honey from Sarasota, Florida, that was raised right here, and you take that, you will get inoculated to the allergies that are around you because those bees are in those flowers that make you sick. And it's a little dose of inoculant. What's the difference between that and any other medicine? Absolutely nothing. That's right. Okay. So you want to throw that type of stuff out in the thinking there. Okay. Um, uh, let's see. Where was I? They bring on themselves prolonged sickness and even premature death. This type of bad analysis is inevitable when context is not considered. But it is not what Paul is speaking of. The wisdom of the world is speaking of that wisdom which excludes Christ in any of its considerations. Okay, now when we speak about wisdom in the world, I've said this, and one of you has got to remember this quote. Johannes Kepler said what about science? God, what? God is, uh, science is thinking God's thoughts after him. Okay, you're not excluding Christ. You're including Christ when you properly pursue science because he is the one that developed it. He developed math. He developed biology. He developed chemistry and all of these other things. If there is a scientific discipline out there, he's the one that's behind it. He is the master of this universe. He is the intelligence behind it. Okay, so um, uh, we don't want to take things out of their proper context. I'll read that verse again, or that uh, sentence again. The wisdom of the world is speaking of that wisdom which excludes Christ in any of its considerations. Science doesn't do that. If a scientist looks for a natural explanation to the ultimate questions of life, science, or philosophy, then he will never find the correct answer to his questions because God is the source of all such wisdom. Oh, here it is. Johannes Kepler wisely said, science is thinking God's thoughts after him. This then is wisdom. Without such an attitude, any pursuit of wisdom is foolishness with God. Now I typed this, what, three years ago or four years ago, whatever. And so I'm just remembering that off the top of my head and then there it is. I ought to read these beforehand, but I never do. <laughs> anyway, um, to build upon and validate this notion, Paul turns to scripture and cites a portion of Job 5.13. He says, for it is written, he's citing scripture, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. The word catches conveys the idea of grabbing it with the fist. 
it is intended to express the notion that no matter what they pursue, apart from including God in the equation, they will never truly get away from the bonds which shackle them. They are pursuing ultimate knowledge, but they are bound by limitations which hinder their ability to discern it. Life application. When contemplating anything of substance, I don't care if you look at the periodic table of the elements, include God in your thoughts. Now, I don't know if the guy that sat down and did the uh, periodic table of the elements was a say believer or not, but he understood that there was harmony and there was order in the universe. And so when he wrote out the, he was a Russian guy, his name is right on the tip of my tongue right now, but anyway, he, he put it in this order, and if you follow it, everything is laid out so perfectly, the noble elements and this, and everything lines up beautifully, but he did not know of certain elements because they hadn't been discovered. But he wrote what they would be like. He knew before they were discovered what their properties would be like, where they would belong in this table, and how they would respect, react to certain things, etc. Why did he know that? Because everything makes sense. Everything fits. As long as you understand that there is something that is making things fit, then you're on the right track. And like I said, he may or may not have been a Christian, but he understood that things don't just arbitrarily happen. There is a reason why things are the way they are. And I hope that he knew the Lord, but that's all I can say. I'll think of his name in a minute. While you're thinking about it. Yep. The preceding verse, if he wasn't a Christian, right. would, would make all the sense in the world. And you so, bet. So, so, okay, so I create this, this periodic chart. I can kind of guess what's missing and stuff like that. I got all this order and science in my head. Finally, I come to Christ. I, oh, I, it makes I, sense. First, I became a fool. Right. But when he came to the Christ. knowledge of Christ, he didn't forget everything no, he knew. No, he became wise because now he has that wisdom applied in the proper direction. Absolutely right. right. He became a fool and he became wise through that. Okay, so... Um, keep Jesus Christ in the equation, and the numbers will always add up as they should. Always. You take them out, they ain't going to add up. Okay? Verse 320. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. The thoughts of the wise are futile. Again, Paul returns to Scripture to confirm the point he has been making. This is a citation of Psalm 94, verse 11. Let me take you there, because it's... 94, we're almost there, 94, verse 11. The Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are futile, okay? The substitution of wise instead of men is intended for those he has been speaking of who hold to the wisdom of the world without including God in their thoughts. The word he uses for thoughts is comparable to reasonings. In other words, the search for the knowledge of things is futile when people do it apart from understanding that God is the ultimate cause of all things. Where is this kind of revealed, especially in Scripture? Somebody pursuing wisdom. Oh, that's um, uh, <laughs> Yes, thank you. Ecclesiastes. Go read that book with that. When you read Ecclesiastes, you want to consider, because it sounds like he's talking about the same thing, and he's saying in one thing, do this, and then the next verse, it sounds like he says, don't do this. And you're like, what is he talking? It's so hard to understand, unless you understand the premise of the book. He speaks about things under the heavens and under the sun. If it is under the heavens, then God has designed it. God has established it for us. He has given it to us as a gift, etc., etc. If it's under the sun, then it, everything is futile. Because the sun isn't a creator, it's just a thing. And if you're looking for something enjoyable under the sun, 
it'll never bring any happiness or joy to you. But if you look at it from the sense of under the heavens, how God has done it, it will always be beautiful. It will always be worth pursuing. Just remember that when you're reading the book of Ecclesiastes, under the heavens, under the sun, which is he talking about at which time? And how do you know? Because it's either futile or it's not futile. So um, let's could, see could here. Could we say lasting? What? Could we say lasting in there? It's not lasting. It's joy for the moment. Uh, absolutely. Joy for the moment. Yeah. That's exactly right. What does he talk about? The guy that uh, he, he works all the time. He has no son. He has no heir. He's laborers for himself. What's the point? But when somebody has an understanding that God is there, I'm doing something that is productive and it is being done under the heavens and in the sight of God, it is lasting. It's not futile. That guy is going to die. He's going to go back to the grave and somebody else is going to get his inheritance and he's going to spend it wisely or not wisely. He doesn't know. This is... Uh, how does he say it? This is something in a grasping for the wind. It, 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 yeah, it's chasing the, the wind. Absolutely. Try grasping the wind. You can't do it. Try grasping water. It just slips right through your hand. This is what he's saying, is that without God in the equation, it doesn't matter. Okay? Um, let's see here. Uh, read that last sentence. In other words, the search for the knowledge of things is futile when people do it apart from understanding that God is the ultimate cause, capital C, of all things. A perfect example of this in the 21st century is the scientific study going on at CERN. That's over in Europe, okay? The Large Hadron Collider, which is on the, <coughs> excuse me, on the Franco-Swiss border near Geneva. At this immense facility is a 27-kilometer-long ring of superconducting magnets with accelerating structures to boost energy. These are used to bring matter to close to the speed of light, and then they smash into other matter going in the opposite direction. In their research, they are attempting to find the God particle. Very good. That's right. The God particle. They believe that by finding a particular particle which results from this type of a collision, they will be able to answer all of the questions concerning the creation of the universe. On their website, they began by asking this, right off their website. What is the universe made of? How did it start? Physician, physicists at CERN are seeking answers using some of the world's most powerful particle accelerators. Okay, now, if they can take two things, two whatever, we'll just call them atoms, but they're not. It's uh, electrons, I think they are. And he, they can get one going in this direction, almost the speed of light, and one going in this direction, almost the speed of light, and they smash into each other, and it produces something nobody's ever seen before. What have they done? They've just created or realized something else that God has already made. That's right. They are playing with tinker toys yeah. because they're using something that's already there, and they're using something that's already there. There was nothing there when this universe started. So what they're doing is just playing with tinker toys. They're just a lot more expensive, and they're a lot cooler, but they're still tinker toys because God had to create those things that they are taking to smash and make other things. Okay? So... Rather than approaching their studies from the presupposition that there is a God and their research will help us to understand how God does these things, as Johannes Kepler did, he was searching God afterwards. He was saying, God did this. I am searching out his thoughts after him. They're not doing that. They leave him out of the equation. The ultimate answer, therefore, will always elude them and they will be kept from what they desire the most. 
Someday at the judgment of man, unless they call on Christ first, they will be eternally separated from him. But they will know that he exists. Thus, they will spend eternity lacking contact with what they now realize to be the truth. They've been searching for him their whole life in what he created rather than searching the one that created the things that they're using to find what they think they're going to find. It's a sad thought, but it is the state of unregenerate man. Life application, without God, the smartest person is just adult. But with God, the least intelligent chap is a true genius. Be really smart. Call on Christ. They could have you over there teaching Genesis. Hey, bonus. <laughs> yeah, that would be a pretty small class, I imagine. Oh, no. You never know. Oh. You never know. 321. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours. Oh, that is it. Boy, that was quick, too. Therefore, well, it's only four pages long. I'm, not, I'm kidding. Okay. Um, therefore, it's now stated for consideration of what he has just been considering throughout the entire chapter. Paul is moving from his argument into an exhortation to those in Corinth, and thus to us who read the epistle. However, his following words are some of the most disregarded in the entire letter. Let no man, let no one boast in men. Boy, is that not a disregard, even in churches. It is with the greatest note of sadness that this simple sentence has gone almost completely unheeded in Christianity. Catholics boast in the Pope. Lutherans boast in Luther. Calvinists boast in Calvin. Modern followers of prophecy boast in an individual in individual analysts. I follow Hal Lindsey. I follow J.D. Farrag. I follow this guy. I follow that guy. Boasting in somebody, right? People cling to TV evangelists and preachers as if they possessed the source of wisdom and knowledge. And yet they're just people serving in a limited capacity for a limited time. And their analyses are merely attempts to explain what has already been given, right? Just like CERN, they're, they've been given something and they're trying to analyze it. That's all we're doing. We're taking the word of God and we're analyzing what he has given us, all right? Paul exhorts each of us to not boast in any man. Instead, let him who boasts... Boast in the Lord. Anything other than this merely diminishes what should be the sole and complete focus of our attention. What does it say in Hebrews 12 too? Let us fix our eyes on Hal Lindsey, right? No! It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Okay? Jesus Christ. In order to explain this, he follows up with an argument for his exhortation by stating, for all things are yours. This will be expanded upon in the verses ahead. It is not a standalone thought that we can run with and claim all knowledge or all authority in and of ourselves. Instead, it is a precursor to what he will next explain. Before we go on, I really like Hal Lindsey. I, I really like his analysis, but let's not boast in Hal Lindsey. Let's boast in the Lord. Okay, life application. It is commendable to recognize a sound theologian, commentator, preacher, evangelist, and so on. I do it in almost every sermon. Mm -hmm. Adam Clark said this, how wise. John Lang, I love the guy. Here's what he said. Charles Ellicott, a, a marvelous mind on that guy. Albert Barnes, one of my favorite commentators. These guys sat in, think of it now. Think of what these guys did. It's not like people nowadays that just pull stuff off the internet. They sat every single day of their life. Some of their commentaries took 30 years to write. 
and they sat there with books and books and books because they referenced these books. And they had to do it probably in crummy light at night because they didn't have electric light bulbs, okay? These people sat there and they thought about the Word of God. They studied the Word of God. They were trained in Hebrew and in Greek. They understood the nuances like people today very few understand, okay? And we dismiss them. Oh, it was 250 years ago. Let me tell you what, that is where the source of knowledge of the Bible really finds its zenith, is in those 10 or 12 men at that time in history that really understood what was going on and were able to sit and meditate on it because that's all they could do. They didn't have a computer to, all right, Charlie Garrett's going to type his sermon today, right? I'm typing it. All of a sudden I hear a bing and I think, oh, I better go check that, right? I, all these little distractions that take you away from that, they didn't have that. They just had their books and they had time to sit and contemplate things. And then they would, you know, go and read other people's analysis and that is where knowledge and wisdom really comes from, is learning the Word of God, learning what people have said about it, and then building upon that, okay? So, it's commendable to recognize the sound theologian, commentator, preacher, evangelist, but Paul warns us not to boast in that individual. Be careful to heed these words, lest your eyes be misdirected away from the Lord. All right, 322. Um, as for those uh, old commentaries? Yes. There is no expert. Expiration date on truth. No expiration date on truth. That is absolutely right. I said this, I think it was in this class, and I said it one or two weeks ago. I may not have, but I think it was this class. What is truth? Uh, what reflects reality. Truth is what corresponds to reality. That's correct. If something corresponds with reality, that is truth. So okay. See, I don't sleep very easily. You didn't sleep. So it was in this class because I, I you know, put something out there, and I forget where I put it out. But good. Here. You, yeah, right it was here. right here. Okay, 322. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, the life or death, or the present or the future, all are yours. All right. Hey, bonus. Verse 322. This verse is dependent on and explains the preceding verse, which said, Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Included in all things is the list he now gives, beginning with whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. Interestingly, Cephas or Peter hasn't been mentioned since 1 Corinthians 1, 12 and 13, when Paul said this. He said, let me go back here, 1 Corinthians 1, 12 and 13. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Okay, that's the last time he was mentioned. In the interim verses, he speaks about the work of Apollos and himself, but not Cephas. The reason why is clear when one understands that the Corinthian church is a predominantly Jewish. Gentile. Corinthian is predominantly Gentile church. Whatever, yes. It's predominant. They're all of Paul's letters are written to Gentile churches. You've got Corinth, you've got Galatia, Ephesus, Colossae. They're all Gentile churches. Another clue, by the way, that the 12 or the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation are Gentile churches is because it, which I understand people are coming up with these crazy theologies now. They're written to Gentile churches. It is directed to the church. Okay. I won't get into that today, but it's almost. We'll just not get into it. it Gentile churches, trust they me on that. probably had the biggest mixture of the, the beliefs ever. You bet. That Absolutely. The Corinthians especially. That's exactly right. Okay, so um, let's see here. Um, uh, it's, it, 
specifically, where was I? Gentile church. Oh yeah, predominantly Gentile church. Whatever effect Cephas had on it was directed to the Jews, as he is the apostle to the Jews. Yes, however, Paul laid the foundation of the church at Corinth as a Gentile entity, and Apollos then continued on in that respect. Cephas did his part. Apollos did his part, and Paul did his part. But those in the church are the recipients of all of their labors, which were united on the proclamation of Christ. There is one covenant. There is one leader of this church. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. It is one. Okay. We don't want to be dividing up the church, which people are doing. Once again, this thing is getting out there. It needs to be stopped because it is an incorrect analysis of scripture. Okay. Cephas did his part. I read that. Okay. The division of these into differing factions is pointless. And as the work of these three all belong to those at Corinth, so do one, the world, meaning all the created order that we can experience and search out in our attempts to know our creator better. Two, life, which is speaking of the fullness of life in Christ rather than the vain and empty pursuits of life separate from Christ. Solomon, long before Paul, noted that all is vanity apart from God. Life ultimately has no meaning or purpose without Christ. But in him, there is the richness of knowing that we are but pilgrims on a journey to a far better place. It is a place which transcends even three, death. The termination of this earthly existence is not a foe to the believer. We sure treat it that way, but it is not. But rather, it is a part of assuming our inheritance. As Paul says in 1 Philippians 1.21, for to me... To live is Christ, to die is, gain. to die is gain. Thank you. Peter explains it as a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That is 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. Four, things present, is the life that we have been given. This is parallel to life noted above. Parallelism is used to reinforce a thought, and it asks the reader to reflect on it a second time. We are living in our present reality, but we have a hope in this reality which is beyond what we can fully grasp. And that will be revealed in five things to come, which is our heavenly inheritance and the fullness of eternal life granted by God through his Son, Jesus Christ. Without this hope, all life is futile and the factions are the norm. But in Christ, there should be no such divisions. All these things are united in him for our benefit and in anticipation of that great day. Paul says that all are yours. And as we are also recipients of his letter to the Corinthians, guess what? We're also included in the promises found in Christ. This is the wonder of our state, and it shows the absurdity of clinging to single teachers or dividing the fellowship in unnatural ways. Our eyes and thoughts are to be focused on the goal, on the prize, on Christ. Life application. We have a heavenly inheritance, but we have to work out our earthly existence. Let us therefore do the latter with the former fully entrenched in our duties and attitudes to the glory of God. We use this life to the glory of God in anticipation of the next life. That is what we're being told to do. Verse 323. Let, oh, 
last verse of the chapter. Yeah. Hey, bonus, huh? And you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. God. Okay. To finish out his current thoughts concerning our allegiances. We've done more verses today than we've done in the past two weeks, I think. We're just blowing through this baby. To finish out his current thoughts concerning our allegiances and also to close chapter 3, Paul notes that you are Christ's. We don't belong to Paul or Peter nor to any other individual sect or denomination. We don't belong to a pope, pastor, or priest. Instead, we belong to Christ. He died for us. He was resurrected, proving that his work was accepted by God. And we have called on him for salvation. We are his, and to him alone belongs our allegiance. Understanding this, Paul finishes with, and Christ is God's. Christ is a member of the Godhead. What is it? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because we belong to him, we belong to God. Jesus is our mediator to God, and no one else can satisfy that role. If we belong to Christ and he to God, then we are accountable to God and owe him our allegiance through Christ. Okay, before I read my last paragraph, I was looking for a friend that needs some work done down the road here. The Thai restaurant, they're going to do something. They need some construction. And she always comes to me for things like that because she her English is a little difficult when you're talking on the phone. And so I had to look for some contractors today. And the first one I pulled up was I put in Christian contractors in Sarasota. The top one was Trinity contractors. Now, he's probably not going to be able to help because um, he's, he does a lot of big stuff. And this is just a small job. But having said that, the first thing I asked him was, why do you call yourself Trinity contractors? And he kind of hesitated for a second. Like, why would somebody ask that? And he says, because of my faith. And I said, well, that's all I need to know. Because if you're going to put Trinity, you obviously believe in the Trinity. Trinity. You're not a Jehovah's Witness, okay? So there you go. And then, what? Mike, that's exactly who. And then when we were talking to him, well, he said, what about you? And I said, well, I'm a pastor of a little church. And he said, what church? He was like like a dog on fire all of a sudden. Oh, invite him again. Yeah, very, very nice to talk to him. And anyway, uh, when I talked to him, I said, well, what church do you attend? He said, Church 360, where Burke attends. So I got talking to him. We had uh, a, a mutual friend, actually, uh, yeah, mutual friend, Burke's son, but he didn't know Burke. I said, well, then get to know the father because he's a nice guy. Yeah. Anyway. I don't know. Mike something. Decazo. whatever. Anyway, there you go. Trinity, Trinity, Trinity. Okay. And he said if he can't help, he'll find somebody for us. So. We'll get her taken care of down the road. Since you've been off chasing. Yes. I got to read uh, Galatians 6.10. Galatians 6.10. 14. 14 is what you wanted. May it never be that I would boast. Yeah. all kind of boasting up here. Boasting, that's right. Never be except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Absolutely right. I was thinking it was in chapter 1. No, 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 no. 614. That's, like I said before, that's probably my second favorite verse in the entire Bible. And I I really love Bible verses. I mean, I I don't care. You know, what is it? Jonah 4, 3 or something? Salvation? No, it's not 4. Anyway, salvation is of the Lord, right? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, you know, there are verses in the Bible that are just wonderful. But my favorite is Hebrews 12, too. And that would be a close second, probably. All right, so here we go. Paul's order of argument and his logic have been exactingly laid out to keep us from misguided allegiances 
and distractions. And yet, we in the church have continuously failed to heed his words. We throw our trust behind a given pastor as if he were the ultimate authority over us in all matters. Some, like Jim Jones, have even taken their flock to their deaths, right? All, just imagine it. Yeah. All of this tragically occurs because we fail to simply heed the words of the Bible. Life application. Here it is. Favorite verse in the Bible. Fix your eyes on Jesus. 4-1. So then, men, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Okay, a little different. Uh, servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Okay. Paul has penned many words concerning divisions in the church, especially those based on following particular individuals. However, he understood the human proclivity towards this kind of action. And so, having shown that Christ is the foundation, and every other person is merely building upon that foundation, he now goes to the task of defining exactly how individual ministers should be perceived. Though they are not to be exalted, they have a particular distinction which is of note. And so he begins chapter 4 with, Let a man so consider us. He's referring to Cephas, Apollos, and himself, along with any others who would come to add upon the foundation. These are to be considered as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul elsewhere calls himself a bondservant of Christ. In Romans 6, he shows that we are all slaves to something. We are either slaves to sin, as Jesus noted in John 8:34, or we are slaves to God and to righteousness. Therefore, his terminology that they are servants of Christ is inclusive of all believers. Okay? In this state, they are to be regarded as equals by the Corinthians. All are under one master, and therefore all owe their allegiance to him alone. But he continues by stating that despite their common status, they are also stewards of the mysteries of God. Okay, what did he just say? They are stewards of the mysteries of God. Here's another way people try to divide the church up. Paul reveals the mysteries of God, and Peter does something else with the Jews. I can't remember what terminology they use. In other words, Paul is the one, and so the church, the Gentile church, is a mystery being revealed by Paul. What did he just say here? that they all are the revealers of the mystery of God. This is poor handling of Scripture. It is dividing one covenant into two, one inheritance into two. Do not be deceived by people that come up with these crazy theologies. There is one church, Jew and Gentile. What God is going to do with Israel in the millennial reign of Christ is because God promised it to Israel in the past. That does not negate that we are all in one covenant. We have one high priest. We have one person performing all the functions for us, Jew and Gentile, okay? I just don't understand how people can take and come up with these crazy doctrines and people follow them. You've got to be very careful to hold to sound theology. If it doesn't sound right the first time you hear it, it's probably not right. But people, they, I'm, I'm going to check that out a little more. And eventually you get off on these side tangents, okay? He broke down that wall, right? That's exactly right. Okay, um, okay, servants are all inclusive of them. Okay, in this state, they are to be regarded as equals by the Corinthians. Oh, I've read this, but I'm going to read it again. All are under one master, and therefore all owe their allegiance to him. He continues by stating that despite their common status, they are all 
stewards of the mysteries of God. They, as apostles and teachers, carried the details of the faith for instruction and building up of the body. In this capacity, they are to be noted for their efforts. However, this type of note is to be shared among all who are in such a position. There shouldn't be an unhealthy division within the category, and there are many categories within the faith. Paul gives several lists throughout his writing, such as one which is coming up in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'll read it to you really quickly here. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, where are we now? You are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and after that, miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Okay? Life application. The Bible asks us to give honor where it is due. In 1 Timothy 5.17, for example, elders are to be given double honor for their service. However, this is a form of respect, not a point of exaltation and division within the body. Be careful to keep the integrity of the body through the exaltation of Christ alone. And we're going to do one more verse. We've got just enough time for two. Yes, go ahead. Technical question. Okay. If all of those were entrusted with the secret things of God, are they still a secret? No. A mystery is something revealed. Behold, I show you a mystery. If he tells you what the mystery is, then it's no longer secret. Correct. But that is what they're trying to do. They're trying to say there's these mysteries that aren't attainable except... Listen, that is almost Gnosticism when you get into that type of stuff. The problem comes with the King James Version. There, there is no covenant in the New Testament. Right. All that word is for known place mystery. Right. So, oh. so it's like, it, it, it just, it confuses it. It, it. it does confuse it, but that's the way it is. But a mystery is something that is revealed. Paul reveals the mystery. Behold, I show you mystery. The mystery of, and you know, what is one of the mysteries that it reveals? He says that now the two have become one. There's no difference. In, but once again, dividing instead of understanding the proper context. And you come up with these very, very flawed doctrines. Um, we have to stop early because we started early. If we go over an hour and a half, then um, uh, uh, what, what's going to happen? Yeah, the poor guy is going to have something that he's got to do with the um, yes podcast. Okay, so 4-2. There we go. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. That's right. They must be found faithful. Verse 2 begins with moreover. This builds upon verse 1, which said, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In addition to this, or moreover, Paul now notes that it is required. Literally, this phrase is, it is sought for, or it is expected. If one is a steward of another, then they are responsible to their master. Certain things must be accomplished, certain qualities are looked for, and certain standards must be maintained. In such a state, it is required, as Paul says, that one be found faithful. His words here certainly reflect the mindset of Jesus' words, which are found in Luke chapter 12. Let me take you there. Luke, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. 12:40. Matthew, Mark. Okay, 12. And then we're going to go to verse 42. Then he says there, well, we'll go back to 41. Then Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all the people? And the Lord said, who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. 
okay? The logic is that one, Jesus Christ is the master. He selects his stewards. He gives his instruction for proper stewardship. These are found where? That's right, in the Bible. They're found right here in the Bible. For he will search out our works, attitudes, and results to determine our faithfulness. Read those again. Christ is the master. He selects his stewards. He gives instruction for proper stewardship. He will search out the works, attitudes, and results to determine our faithfulness. Life application, just on time. Have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? If so, you have become a steward or a servant of Christ. Are you learning his instruction manual? I'll stop right there and I'll say that somebody called me yesterday that attends our church. I won't go any further than that. And this individual said, I really want to start reading the Bible and knowing it. And where do you recommend that I start? And I told this individual where to go and I was so happy to do so. All right? Because... This is something that is now burning in this person's heart. And i that's my one sole reason for being in the ministry is to get people to want to learn the word of God. I can't think of anything else that I get joy out of above that. Not one thing. When I went around to the 50 states, what was, what was it called? It was called a capital adventure. That was my part. The 50 state challenge. That was their part. You read the Bible. Well, I'm going to the 50 states. And by the time I get back, you will be done with the Bible. And 600 or so people signed up and said that they would do that. And many of them today email me from time to time and say, I'm still reading my Bible. I've never read it before, but they are, and that is what matters. That made it all worthwhile. 3,048 gallons of gas to do it, but it got done. Yes. Seriously? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, are you learning his instruction manual? Are you executing your duties according to that manual? This is our one shot at doing these things before we stand before his judgment seat. Make sure to do them diligently and correctly. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for the chance to come and meet in this class today and to uh, share in your word. And I would pray that people are built up and edified by what has been said. If something was incorrect, please lead them to a right understanding of it and uh, also me as well. I don't want to be wrong and I do not want to teach what is incorrect in your word, Lord God. But we certainly pray for the people we mentioned earlier and those that we brought up during the class. We would ask that you would be with them and all of the people that are watching or that will watch this in the future. If there is something that is keeping them from a happy and right relationship with you, whether it's physical, spiritual, emotional, mental, financial, interpersonal, interrelational, whatever it is, if you would just search them out and give them the understanding that sometimes those things happen that you will be glorified through them as they endure through them. And sometimes you want them to be taken away so that you will be glorified through that. Either way, help them to understand that and to praise you through the storm or after the storm is over. To your glory, we pray. And we do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let me back up the uh, do-wacky here. Do yes, the do-wacky. Oh, oh. Let's see here. And then say goodbye to these folks online. Let's see. We're going to go to... Uh, uh, break. There we go.